You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I just heard a comment. I am not John. Um, <laughs> you've probably looked at your outline already this morning. Go ahead and pull it out if you haven't yet. Um, we had uh, some people on vacation this weekend and then with some added unexpected illnesses, uh, we had to do some switcherooing on all of our campuses. And so I am filling in for my husband. And then Rick obviously is not me. He is your host uh, for today. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so no, we're thankful we're a team around here and we're able to step in for each other when we need. And it's really my honor and privilege uh, to be with you. If you don't know who I am, maybe this is one of your first times here at Daybreak. Uh, my name is Mel, Mel Hendrickson, and I'm the director of global ministries here uh, at Daybreak. I love my job and it is really a privilege to be here with you this morning and to share with you uh, what I believe God wants to say to us, um, whether it was through John or me. <laughs> Uh, that God wants to say to our church family today. We are in uh, week seven of a series uh, that Pastor Rick was talking about earlier. And I want to take a moment here and review for you, uh, in case you haven't been able to make it to every week or maybe you are new, uh, what we've been talking about for the last six weeks. Um, and then we're going to dive into what God has to say to us today. So um, the first week of our series on emotionally healthy spirituality, um, we really just addressed the problem, and we talked about this idea of the iceberg, which is in the graphic behind me on the wall, and how 90% of an iceberg is really discovered below the surface, and how if we continue to live as adults, uh, forgetting or ignoring that 90% and only live in the top 10%, um, that we're not digging under, digging deep and finding uh, some of those areas where uh, emotional health does need uh, to take place, uh, emotional maturity. So we talked about that in week one. And then on to week two, um, we explored the life of David, David from Scripture and uh, addressed knowing yourself in order to know God and what that would look like. And then the following week, which is probably the week for me uh, that I... Most connect, have most connected with and probably have been most challenged by because I continue to think about it on a regular basis. And that was the idea that we have to look back in order to move forward and how our past and oftentimes our experiences in our family of origin have affected the way uh, we live now. And so some of those things that were passed on to us were good, and some of those things were unhealthy. And so being able to address all of those things and move forward in a healthy way. So that was a big week uh, for me. And then the next week, we talked about journeying through the wall. And if you were here, you might remember we had some bricks on stage addressing some of those big earthquake events that happen in our life and how we can push through some of those really big events that can stunt our emotional development. And then the following weeks, using some of those same bricks, we really encouraged you to consider grieving your losses in a healthy way. And I was actually worshiping at Good Hope Road that week, and God really spoke to those of us who were there without power, I think, that was the week, uh, and, what, and what it looked like uh, to be able to grieve our losses in a healthy way. And then last week, if you were here, you might remember um, we had a rope tied to the cross, and we talked about grabbing the rope, about using those day-to-day -day moments in life to have uh, a connection with God, to stop and hear His voice and be silent before Him, and giving yourself the time uh, to celebrate Sabbath and to rest and to hear, uh, be in communion and relationship with Jesus. And so today, we're going to be talking about growing up into an emotionally healthy adult and what that looks like for each of us. And so I got thinking about when I was growing up and how, you know, when you're growing up, 
when you're young at least, you're always looking forward to the next thing that you can do or the next thing you can have because you're old enough now. And for me, I was very independent when I was, or at least I wanted to be uh, independent when I was growing up. And so something like learning to drive for me, for example, was a huge thing. And I couldn't wait till I turned 16. And when I did, I went on my birthday, you know, to the to PennDOT to take the test. And back then, you didn't have to wait, though, however long you have to wait now to get your license. Is it like six months or 12 months or whatever? Well, back then, you didn't have to wait. And so I, like, a week later, I went and took my test. Failed. Had to go back again (laughs) and take it again. But for me, learning to drive was a huge area that gave me some independence because I would always have to ask my mom to take me places, and she was a taxi driver in our family, (laughs) and she would taxi around me and my other sisters, and I was like always like itching to want to get out on my own. And so I think many of you can probably relate to that. Like there was something as you were growing up that you were always looking forward to that when I just got to be that old or I just got to be that age, I could have this or do this or whatever. And I think there's like this innate desire in all of us to want to grow up. You know, there's always something exciting and captivating about growing up, and I think that's good. And today we're going to be talking about what it looks like to grow up emotionally and spiritually and how our emotional health, this is something we've been talking about every week, but how our emotional health is directly related to our spiritual maturity. And so if we can't, it's impossible to be um, an emotionally unhealthy person and a spiritually healthy person. It's impossible. They just don't line up. We have to bring them into alignment. And in so doing, we have to be willing to address some of the areas that may be emotionally not grown up and allow God to help us identify those things, grow them up in us so that we can become the spiritually mature adult uh, that he longs and really desires for us to be. And so um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this, these stages of development And there's a list in your outline. You can go ahead and open that up. And the stages of emotional development, I want to help you parallel them with the stages of our own physical growth because I think that there are a lot of parallels and and equalities between the two. And so I'm going to read down through this list. And what I want you to do as I'm reading is to try to identify where you might be in these stages. And honestly, you might find yourself in different stages for different areas. And I want to also caution you as I'm reading to see this list as a self-assessment for you, okay? What I don't want you to do is to think about all the other people in your life and where they are. Well, aren't they just an emotional infant, okay? (laughs) This is not about other people for now. (laughs) This is about you and identifying for yourself uh, where you may lie. And Give yourself permission to be honest with with yourself today. Okay, so emotional infants, all right? Infants have no sense of others at all, right? It's all about them. They would say, it's all about me. They look for others to take care of them. They're driven by the need for instant gratification, and they have great difficulty entering the world of others. Now, I have a nephew who I love so much. He's 15 years old, or 15 months old. Wow. He's 15 months old, and he's and even in just the 15 months, he's grown so much, right? Don't they grow so fast when they're little like that? And now that he's 15 months, he can really understand everything that you're saying, and he's just finally, truly beginning to realize that it might honor somebody else if he chooses to obey, because <laughs> he understands when you say, don't do that, please, you know, and he'll look at you. <laughs> he's just beginning to understand that it might honor someone if he stops fussing, <laughs> or if he obeys and listens. And so, but he still has a long way to go because he's only 15 months old. So let's go to the next one. Uh, emotional children. 
Emotional children, it's not only just about me. They are aware of you, okay, but you are there to help me. That's their mentality. So it says that they're content as long as they receive what they want. Emotional children unravel quickly from stress, disappointments, and trials. They complain, withdraw, manipulate, become sarcastic when they don't get their way. And they have difficulty expressing their wants and needs in a a mature and loving way. Now, if you have children, you understand what I'm talking about here. But honestly, when I read that list, I can act like that sometimes. And can't we all sometimes act like this? All right, let's look at emotional adolescence. Now, the interesting thing about adolescence is that they don't want to be treated like children, but they don't want the full responsibilities of being an adult yet, right? And so with emotional adolescence, uh, they become preoccupied with themselves. They're searching for identity. Uh, They tend to be defensive. And they can often deal with conflict by blaming or appeasing or going to a third party or pouting (laughs) or ignoring the issue entirely. And when I was 13 years old, 14, 15 years old, oh my, (laughs) this was me. (laughs) This was totally me. I would like tell my mom basically something like, I want you around when I want you around. I don't want you around when I don't want you around. And you're supposed to know when all of those moments are without me having to tell you when they are. And then you're not only supposed to understand all that, but you're supposed to do what I want and just make my life happy at all times. (laughs) And I I don't know if you know a teenager like that, but that was me. (laughs) Totally me when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. Well, God really desires that we grow into an emotionally healthy adult. So let's look at that list where you and I are both valuable uh, to him and see, each, uh, see ourselves and other people in God's image. So emotional adults recognize, manage, and take responsibility for their own thoughts and feelings. They can state their own beliefs and values without becoming adversarial. They give people room to make mistakes and not be perfect. And they appreciate people for who they are and not what they give back. And they can compassionately enter the feelings and needs of others without losing themselves. Okay, so in order, guys, in order to be able to move through these different stages of, an emotion, of emotional development, no matter where we are, we have to be aware of, and be able to identify where we are and be honest about that. And because sometimes I know I can tend to place myself more mature than I really am. And I have to be willing to be gut honest with myself to say, no, this is a way that I respond more like an emotional child. And how can I grow to take the next steps to be the emotional adult that God really wants me to be. And so what I want you to do today is to not give yourself a pass for developing and growing emotionally. And we can do that too. We can say, oh, because of this or because of that, I don't need to grow up there. I'm, you know what? Who cares? And I don't want you to do that today. Please don't give yourself a pass today. Be able to identify where you are and ask God to take, help you take your next steps in your own development. And this is what we're going to be talking about today is how can I grow into the emotionally healthy adult? And so I want you to write this down because this is kind of the short answer to the question I just posed. The short answer is that to grow up, I need to learn how to love well. Learn how to love well. Write that down. I need to learn how to love well. So we're going to be looking at this passage uh, of Scripture today that talks about an encounter between Jesus and what the Scripture labels as an expert in religious law. And there's this conversation that happens between the two of them. And during the conversation, Jesus decides to tell a story. So we're going to be looking at the conversation and the story together. And I think you're going to notice uh, with the the man who is known as an expert in the law, that he really does come across with a lot of intellectual knowledge. 
So he, he's very smart. He knows what he's talking about. But as we dig a little deeper, you'll begin to see that maybe emotionally he's not so healthy. So I'm going to read this passage of Scripture to you from Luke chapter 10. You can listen to the text as I read. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, well, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul, all of your strength and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Well, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? All right, in one of the translations, as I was reading, uh, the very last verse in another translation actually says, and looking for a loophole, the man asked Jesus, and just how would you define neighbor? (laughs) So this man was looking for a loophole. He was looking to justify his actions. And when he even asked Jesus, and what, and, or Jesus even said right back to him, well, what does the law say? You asked me this question, but what do you know to be true? And the man actually gives him the right answer. He, he throws the uh, greatest commandment right back in Jesus' face, right? To love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. But Jesus was able to look at the heart and, t- and intentions of the man and, and address this kind of squishy spot in the man's heart by telling the story that he knew would kind of rub the man a little, it would challenge him, okay? So he reads this, he tells this story, so I'm going to read it to you now. A Jewish man, this is Jesus' story, a Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, otherwise known as a Levite, for those of you who may know that word, a Levite walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, Well, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes. Now go and do the same. So it looks to me like this expert in the law knew what to do, right? He had the right answer for Jesus, but it feels to me like he didn't actually want to go about doing the work to make it happen. He knew what to say. He knew what to do, but he didn't want to follow through on the tough stuff in order to make it happen. So what we're going to do is we're going to look back through this story today that Jesus shared and try to identify for us what it would look like to help us grow into the emotionally healthy adults and to learn to love well in the ways that he, God always wanted us to. So growing up, number one, growing up means that I get close enough 
to see the need. I actually get close enough to see the need. Okay, so there is a Jewish man who's walking on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which I've actually seen that road. I saw the road from, uh, from a, out, a lookout point, actually, when I was in Israel once. And we were looking down on this, and it was known for its, like, bandits and robbery back in the time. And so on this road, a Jewish man is traveling. He gets viciously robbed, stripped, beaten down by bandits. Everything's taking away from, taken away from him. He is, like, completely vulnerable, laying on this road, probably embarrassed, thinking that he's going to die. And this, and this is what happens, Luke 10, 31. And by chance, a priest came along, and when he saw the man lying there, what does he do? He crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Well, then the Levite, the temple assistant, walked over, saw him lying there, but he, what? Also passed by on the other side of the road. And then a despised Samaritan, the reason they say despised is because the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. So then this unlikely Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, can you guys underline that last phrase? He saw the man. He saw the man. So the Samaritan, which we now have come to know as the Good Samaritan, uh, this is where that term came from, Uh, the Good Samaritan under normal circumstances would have not had time for a Jew, okay? They didn't get along. The Samaritans were seen as half-breeds. Normally, they would have not interacted with each other, but he took the time and actually noticed this beaten and bruised man. When the holy men, right, the priest, the Levite, the holy men maybe saw physically but chose to turn their head and walk around the need and pass it by. So why didn't the holy men, why didn't they want to see the need? Why didn't they want to see it? Well, I got thinking about this, and no joke, about a week and a half ago, I was sitting in my office and working, and I thought I saw some movement, like, to my left, and so it caught me by surprise, and, so, and I was in my office alone, and I looked over, and there was a mouse in my office. Yeah. Okay. So I went running out of my office and into the hall, this hall right up here, and there was nobody in the hall, which is unusual. And so I don't know what to do. So I'm looking down both ends of the hall, hoping someone was going to come out, and nobody did. So I was just like... Yeah, there's a mouse in my office. <laughs> like I literally yelled it, hoping someone would come to my rescue. Well, they did. So one person came out like laughing at me, saying, oh, good luck. (laughs) Good for you. And then one person came out saying, just don't kill it. Like, okay. And then one person came out, uh, and they, they were actually very willing to help. They went into my office, tried to corner the thing, but after like a minute was unsuccessful. Cor- and I heard these crashing sounds in my office. <laughs> they were unsuccessful, so they walked out and was like, well, have fun with the mouse today. <laughs> I was like, I am not going back in there. And so then finally somebody came out and said, I'll, I'll catch it. So he, the mouse catcher, went into my office with the person who wanted to make sure that it wasn't killed. And the two of them went into my office and closed the door, which really, I don't know why they closed the door, because there's like a one-inch gap between the bottom of my door and the floor, which the mouse could have easily run out of. But anyhow, so they, they finally, after like a few moments, opened the door proudly, and they're holding this um, office trash can, like my black, those normal like black office trash cans, and they had taken the bag out of it, it was empty, and they're like, 
we caught it. And I was like, what? And so I'm standing in the hall with my, uh, one of my coworkers' daughters who happened to be visiting that day, and she doesn't like mice either. And so we were like not wanting to see this thing, right? Because mice are like, yeesh. And so they put, it down, they put the trash can on the floor in the middle of my office, and she and I were like this. Why am I so afraid of mice? I mean, he's in this trash can, right? So, but I'm, I'm like creeping up and we're like looking in like this, like I don't even want to see the thing, right? And it's silly to think about like me not even wanting to see this ma- mouse, but I, I did have to chuckle. Well then, okay, just so you know, we didn't kill the mouse. They took it outside and put it in those trees or whatever that are out back. Yeah, the mouse is alive for all you animal lovers. And he was a cute little mouse. He was just like... I just didn't want him running across my feet (laughs) when I was working. And so it got me thinking about not even wanting to see this mouse. Like, what is it in our life, truly, though, that makes us not want to see needs around us? Like, when someone has a real need, why do we tend to be more like the priest and the Levite and turn our heads and walk around them? And so I was thinking about this, and I came up, there's probably a lot of excuses. In fact, if I gave you each a chance to write a list of excuses of why we choose to not see needs, we could come up with a pretty exhaustive list. But there's three excuses that I want to share with you that I've really been processing because I think they're ones that we can all relate to. And the first excuse is that we don't have the time to see needs in our life. Or at least we don't think we do, right? We just don't think that we have the time. And maybe we get just so caught up in our own world that it's hard to see those needs around us. And for the priest and the Levite, you know, maybe one of them had a speaking engagement at the synagogue. (laughs) Or maybe one of them told his wife he'd be home by 5 o'clock that day and I just can't stop because I told her and then she gets, you know, and I don't have the time. (laughs) Or maybe, uh, you know, maybe one of them just, I don't know. There were reasons for why he walked around and it could have been because of time. And I really related to this because I know how busy my life is and how cluttered it can be and how I don't even give myself any margin to have time to see needs around me. And so that was one way that I can choose to justify my actions or find a loophole like the expert in the law did with Jesus. He was searching for some kind of a loophole. Well, the second excuse that can sometimes be a loophole for us is that seeing a need makes us uncomfortable. And I don't know about you, but when you've ever seen a need that makes you uncomfortable, what, how you react to it? Because sometimes, like, and I'm guilty, trust me, I am so guilty of this. Like, I will consciously choose to change the channel. I will consciously choose to close my eyes. I will consciously choose to drive past it. And anytime we feel uncomfortable, we can make choices that aren't healthy. And I wonder if the priest and the Levite did that that day. And I wonder if we do it on a regular basis when we see needs as well. But I have to wonder, guys, that when it's in our most uncomfortable moments of seeing a need, that God will use us in our greatest moments. Because he will use that uncomfortableness to show us that it is not about us. It's not about addressing the needs that we like or we feel comfortable about, but that in addressing the needs, even when we feel uncomfortable, might just be the area where we're most developed and made more like Christ and where we are most able to grow into the mature, healthy, emotional adult that he intended us to be. And so the third excuse that I got thinking about and why we 
look for loopholes in seeing needs is that we don't like to be responsible for things. Like, I don't want to be responsible for meeting that need. Don't make me responsible. I am responsible enough in life. Do you know how many things I'm responsible for? How many people I'm responsible for? If I see that need and actually do something about it, I have to be in charge and I have to, you know what, I'm just going to take a step back. I'm going to wait for somebody else to see the need. Then they'll take charge of it. It'll be their responsibility and phew, I don't have to be responsible for one more thing. We do that, yeah? We so do that. All of us are guilty of that, and we're just looking for loopholes. And, you know, we have a hundred other excuses, I'm sure, on ways that we are prevented from seeing the needs. And I have to ask you, what prevents you from seeing the need, from seeing the needs of those around you? And I have to say, guys, that we might not walk out of here and drive down the road and, and see a beaten and bruised man who's just been robbed and stripped of his clothing, Okay like the Samaritan saw that day, the needs that we see here in our middle-class neighborhoods of Mechanicsburg and Carlisle and Camp Hill, most of us live in a very middle-class community. Those needs might look something more like there's broken marriages surrounding us everywhere and hurting wives and husbands. Maybe there's kids that have absent parents or disengaged parents, or maybe there's a need of, there's just so much financial stress within a home that they just, they feel hopeless and they don't know where to go next. Or maybe people are just feeling so lonely and looking for a place to belong. Like those are the kinds of needs that we in our culture here and now are being addressed with. And are we seeing them? Are we giving ourselves the space to even noticing them? Or are we choosing to pretend that they're not even there and walking around them and ignoring them? Well, I believe that God wants us to grow up into a mature, a mature emotionally healthy adult and in order to do that, we have to allow ourselves to see those needs and to be able to love well and to respond to them. And so that takes me on to number two, and that growing up means that I get close enough to care. I get close enough to actually care about the person. So Luke 10.33, then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, what? He felt compassion for him. He felt something. He actually felt something. His heart was stirred when he saw the man. And now this is important because he didn't just walk down this Jerusalem to Jericho Road and see like a crime statistic. Well, there's lots of bandits that get people on this road and there's another one. <laughs> okay, he didn't see that man as just a robbed person or just a, a, a beaten person. He saw him as a human being, a real person who needed care. And I got thinking about his response because he he could have easily just seen him as that crime statistic. He could have easily walked past and chalked it up to another robbery, but he didn't. He chose to look at the man as a real person. And I was challenged because I realized how often it is that I will objectify people. And instead of treating them as real people, I see them as an object of some kind. And I'd like to use the term it's. We start to look at people as an it instead of as a he or a she that has been created in God's image. Now, maybe it would be best for me to explain what I mean by it uh, with an illustration or two. Um, I don't know how many fantasy football fans we have out there, but I do not have a fantasy football team. My husband does. He cares very much about his fantasy football team, gets on whatever day of the week you have to get on, and does all his trading and his starting, and he, who's on a bye week and who's injured. And he 
But when you do that, like, he doesn't care about who is who. Like, he cares if they're injured, if they're on a bye, if they're performing well. And he has now suddenly labeled all of these players as it's. <laughs> he treats them as an it. And so I got a little personally offended the other day when someone came into my office and told me that they had Andre Johnson on their fantasy team because I am a Houston Texans fan. Yes, I am. That's right. And Andre Johnson is on my team. He's probably one of the best players in the NFL. Don't argue with me. And he is injured with a hamstring injury right now. So he's been out of uh, play for a couple of weeks. He won't be back for probably like another two. But he, um, yeah, so as a true Texans fan, like I miss Andre Johnson. I miss him out there running and scoring points and the, I mean he's very very good at his at his sport and so I'm like just wanting him to get better and heal and so he can play but this person who walked into my office this week who has Andre Johnson on their fantasy team you know what he said well he's been completely worthless the last three weeks <laughs> he was treating Andre Johnson as an it <laughs> but seriously may be funny, but we can do that with people all the time. That's a funny example, but we do this with people all the time. Like, so more seriously, I think we sometimes tend to do this with people in authority. We can tend to see that leader or that government official or that boss in my, in my organization or whoever it is, someone who just maybe sees the world a little differently than I do, and they lead in a different way than I do, and suddenly I get this opinion about them and this judgment over them that makes them completely worthless to this planet or something, <laughs> as if they're not a real person. And I don't think that God wants us to look at people in authority or anybody just as it's, but he wants us to see them as real people. And I'm embarrassed to say that sometimes I even treat my family members or some of my close friends as it's because I don't have time to value them as the person that God created them to be. You know, when a couple, well, it was a couple of months ago, actually, my husband was sick and he had, came down with the shingles. And I don't know if you've ever had the shingles, but it's connected with the chickenpox virus and it's very painful. But we didn't know that it was shingles and it started to uh, come out across his rib cage. And it was very painful, but because we didn't know what it was, he started complaining to me that his ribs were like sensitive to the touch and maybe there was a blister coming up. And I was just like, in my head, I was thinking, actually not in my head, I came right out and said, like, you're a pansy, basically. <laughs> Get over yourself. So your skin hurts to touch it on your rib cage. Like, woo, I mean, you know. And wives, if you know, sometimes we don't, we have less compassion for our husbands when they're, well, I definitely do. So sure enough, over the next couple of days, it started to get worse. And I was convinced, I was showing no compassion. I was convinced that he was full of it. And as it got worse, though, he finally went on WebMD, started Googling his symptoms. And sure enough, he has the shingles. And so I was like, okay. So we went to the doctor and they prescribed all his medication and it took about two weeks for it to clear up. Um, thankfully, it didn't get really bad. It only took about two weeks. And at the end of the two weeks, and I have to tell you, he did give me permission to share this, but at the end of the two weeks, John looked at me and said, I hope when we have kids and they get sick that you treat them with more compassion than you just did me. <laughs> and I said, I hope I do too. <laughs> I was awful to him. I mean, seriously, just no love or compassion at all. So I do, you guys will have to pray for me as we have children that I will treat them with compassion and love when they, when they get sick, yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, I was treating John as an it. Like I didn't, ha I didn't feel any kind of compassion for him or sympathy towards him. And we can do this 
with people in our lives. And I especially want to caution you to consider, as you were growing up in your family of origin, what people or types of people or groups of people were you taught to treat as an it? And maybe your parents or authority figures, whether they intentionally or unintentionally created those environments that made you feel that way or act that way, all of our families of origin have created these environments where we tend to see maybe that kind of a person or that type of person more as an it than, a, than as, the val as the valuable person that God has made them to be. And so it's in those areas that we have to really be gut honest with ourselves. And why do I treat those people as it's? Why don't I give them the time of day? Why don't I extend the grace that I need to extend? And why don't I get to know them? Like I should be getting to know them as a real person instead of passing these judgments and just thinking that they're like this it or thing or group of somethings <laughs> over here. So I want to read uh, for you from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 because this, this passage, it is a famous passage, but I believe that it helps to teach us what it looks like to love well and to shift from treating people like it's to truly loving them like God wants us to. So 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and angels but didn't love, didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith, faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love, I would have gained nothing. So this passage teaches us, guys, that nothing else compares to learning how to love well. No gift or ability or special privilege, no success or whatever can replace what it looks like to love well. And you know what I think? I think the Good Samaritan was able to treat that man on the road with love and with dignity because he knew what it felt like to be treated as an it. He was a Samaritan. He was the despised one. He was the one that was prejudged immediately just because he was a Samaritan. He grew up knowing what it felt like to be like an it. Do you, have you ever felt like you were treated as an it instead of as a person? You were labeled, you were misunderstood, you were misjudged, and it puts your defenses up because you're like, whoa, 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 I'm a real guy here. I'm a real girl. Like, why, why are you treating me like this? And I wonder if it's in those moments where we can remember or maybe still are being treated as an it, that God wants to use our humility and the transformation that he's doing in us to bless others. Because if we continue, if we're in these moments where we're being treated as an it, okay, and we keep harboring up all of these like negative feelings and emotions about that, what we can do is if we never address them and allow God to transform them in, transform them in us, we can begin to implode because then we get this victim mentality of like, oh, I'm always treated as the it. I'm always looked at and seen as this or that or whatever. But what I believe God wants us to do, because that's exactly how an emotional child acts, okay? It's all about them. You're here to serve me, right? But what God wants us to do in order to, in order to develop and to uh, grow is he wants to take all those messy things that have created this it inside of us and heal it and allow us to turn around and, and use those moments to be a blessing to others because we get what it feels like to be treated as an it. 
And that's what I think was beautiful about the Samaritan. He got it. He knew, but he didn't allow himself to just say, well, finally, the Jew can feel like in it too because so he knows what it feels like. No, he humbled himself and with grace and mercy extend, extended love and chose to love well in that moment. So let me ask you, when are you tempted to view people as an it instead of choosing to love them well? Well, when we can each embrace that kind of love, the love that we talked about in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, we can learn to then grow into the ability to, number three, uh, to act with compassion. Growing up means I get close enough to act with compassion. All right, let's go back to our story here one last time. Luke 10, 34. So going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them, and then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, which was actually two full day's wages. You should know that. That's a lot. And telling him, please take care of the man, and if the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. So you know what was cool about what the Good Samaritan did here? He used the resources that God had given him to be a blessing to the beaten man. However, he also went the extra mile. You know, he put him on his own donkey and paid two days' wages in order to make sure that he was cared for. He really went the extra mile. He was sacrificial in his generosity, right? But get this. He also did not move into the inn and stay with the guy for weeks and months on end. (laughs) He didn't create a codependency between him and that man. He chose to, in a wise, wise way, address the situation, ask God to take him out of his comfort zone, see the need, feel the need, act on the need, but not create an unhealthy envir- a continuing unhealthy environment between him and the man. So cool, right? And so I got thinking about this and how I choose to act with compassion, and I really believe that God wants me to act in the same way that the Good Samaritan acted with that man, to not treat the man as an it, but to value him as a person. And so my hope today is that there have been several ideas that have popped into your head personally in ways that you can really see needs, that you can feel for someone and extend that compassion to them and act on it, and that you can identify maybe who those it people are in your life and begin to treat them as individuals. And I know that that's going to be personal for you or maybe your family, maybe even your small group, but there is a way. um, I didn't bring one up. Can you hand me one of those bags, please? Thank you. There is a way that we're going to do it together, thank you, as a church family, um, and that's in our Feed the Need project. And every year now for a lot of years here at Daybreak, we've been addressing the hunger needs in our community. And this is one way that our whole church family has come together to meet a hunger need. And this year it's going to look a little different, and we are so excited about the project. And so in a moment, you probably have noticed some tables with these pink bags around the room. Uh, In a moment I'm going to tell you... uh, what you can do to grab your bag. But before I do that, I have a video I want to show you because our central staff team, in wanting to re-engage with the vision of New Hope Ministries and what they're about, decided to take a field trip. And we went down to their brand new warehouse that they recently opened in Mechanicsburg and to get a tour and to meet one of their staff members and re-hear the vision of what God is calling New Hope Ministries to. And we took a video camera with us. And so we just want to show you this brief clip from our visit at New Hope Ministries. Take a look. Hey, Daybreak! Welcome to New Hope Ministries. I'm here with the Daybreak staff. We got 
got a great tour this morning, and as many of you know, we have Feed the Need coming up in just uh, next week. So today, you're going to have all kind of bags in your hands, and we're going to talk to you about how to collect food. And uh, we'd love to collect eight tons to be able to give away food to other people. I'm here with Sue, who's the program director at New Hope. And uh, Sue, can you just tell us a little bit about how does... When we donate food, how does that translate into the hands and feet of Jesus in the community? How does that help people and address needs in our community? Well, we have seen such a need in our community over the past year. We've had a 40% increase in the food that we're giving out on a regular basis. And when people come through these doors, the needs are so great. And for us to be able to give them even a can of soup, that is someone's lunch. Mm -hmm. And being able to just give them a little bit of pasta, some sauce, whatever we can give, we're sharing Christ's love by meeting that human need but just loving on them a little bit and letting them know that we care and we want to make a difference in their lives. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 25 that when we give to the least of these, we've given to him. We've recognized him. So, Daybreak, I want to invite you to give to the least of these, to be a part of something huge. We donate food, we fill up empty shells, and uh, God does something amazing through you. a couple takes of that. So that, that's funny. I like that. That was great. I love our team. Our central staff team's awesome. It was great to be down there. And I'll tell you what, when we were touring that facility, I realized that their food pantry is just a piece of what they do at New Hope. They do much more than just meet hunger needs. In fact, they to their clients, they also give rental assistance, medical assistance, uh, assistance for heat and utilities and transportation. They even offer classes for literacy, literacy and getting your GED. They help people find jobs. There's financial classes. They have after-school programs every day of the week at different schools for different age groups. I mean, they are really holistically meeting the needs in our community, community and it is our humbled honor to call them a, part, a ministry partner. And they are doing some fantastic things, and we love that we get to come alongside of them and help meet this need. And, you know, I have to share something personal with you, that when we were going through touring that building, we, at the very beginning, when we were still standing in the lobby, one of their clients walked in to drop something off briefly, and then we got the tour, and then on our way out, there was actually some moms there with their kids waiting to get food. And I felt really convicted in those moments because I realized that as a church family, we weren't, we're not collecting food to meet the needs of those people, of these it's, of like hungry people or poor people or those people. Like we were here to meet the needs of that lady, that, these people right here. Like these are real men and women and children, like real families. And God just convicted me about how I even see the, the, those people as it's. And he wanted me to make it personal. No, Mal, these are, these are families that I love. And they don't have the resources that you have to go home and have lunch today or to go out and have lunch today. And I want your church family to come alongside to share their resources generously, sacrificially, to help meet the needs of those that just don't have it. And it became a real moment for me in seeing these women and men come in and out of that front door. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to invite you to participate in our Feed the Need uh, project. And you've probably heard Pastor Joel and some of our other speakers say, we want 100% involvement with this. 
And if you're a guest with us today, please feel no pressure to participate. If you'd like to, though, please feel welcome to. We'd love to have you participate. But what we're going to do is in just a moment, the worship team's going to come. They're going to play a song, really actually a beautiful song that would, I would encourage you as much as you can to read the words, engage with the, the truth. Feel free to sing along if you catch on. It's a beautiful song. But during that song, we're going to invite you guys to, I think you see a couple of tables with uh, pink bags around the room. Uh, there's also some in the acoustic venue. Uh, during that song, you're going to make your way forward and grab a bag and one, or a pack of bags. The bags have already been pre-counted into stacks of five, and inside each bag is a food, a shopping list, like a wish list from New Hope Ministries for all the foods that they would need to get through this busy holiday season. And so, what we'd ask for you to do is to take a stack or more if you'd like. There's plenty, so if you feel like five, more than five is what God wants you to do, by all means, take as many as you wish. But just take uh, at least one stack, and what we're asking is that you go shopping yourself to fill one bag, and then that you include four other people in your life, because we don't want you to just go home and shop and be done with it. Like, we really want this to be a community effort. So would you consider inviting maybe some of your coworkers or literally your neighbors or friends to also participate in this? And then you'll shop and collect this week, and then next Sunday, everyone's going to show up with our pink bags, <laughs> and there's going to be a truck out in the parking lot. You can drop it off on your way into worship, and we're going to fill that truck. Our goal is to collect eight tons of food between this camp and the Good Hope Road campus to help stock the shelves at New Hope Ministries. And we are excited to be able to do this together. And by the way, we do still need some volunteers to help us load the truck next week. We don't want you to just all throw your food in there, free for all. <laughs> so if you're able to, there's a website uh, in your outline where you can go on the Daybreak site and sign up for a volunteer shift next week to help kind of pack that truck up and make sure it stays organized. You know, guys, this is what the church is called to, to do and to be. When God ha has asked us to be a representation of his love and truth in this planet before he comes, meeting needs in love is what Jesus was about when he walked on this earth too. And we want to model that in just relentlessly in our community. And so this is just the way that once a year that we do it together. And so thank you for being a part of this. So I'm going to pray. And when I'm done... I want you to start making your way to one of these tables, grab a pack of bags or two, make your way back to your seat, and engage in this worship song. Does that make sense? All right, let me pray. Jesus, you were an incredible model to us of what it looked like to love well. You loved passionately. You were willing to see needs. You never turned your head away from a need. You felt compassion for people, and you acted in love. You were the ultimate model to us, and you were a great teacher, and you taught the, the man, that scholar that day of what it looked like uh, to grow into spiritual and emotional maturity, and now you're using it today, 2,000 years later, to convict us, convict us and teach us what it looks like to grow up, what it looks like to love well what it looks like to go beyond ourselves, to begin to look outwardly and use the areas in our life that maybe have been hurts and pains and turn them around to be a blessing to others. So God, I pray for every single person in this room. I pray for every single person in our church family that we would be honest with ourselves enough to identify where we are in our spiritual journey and that we would be willing to do whatever it takes to grow up emotionally into the man, men and women of God that you have always longed for us to be. 
just like you challenge us to see others as the made in the image that you created them to be, you want us to see ourselves the same way. You long for us to see ourselves the way you see us as a dearly loved child, as a dearly loved man and woman of God, that you transform, that you grow, that you love. And God, through that identity in you, that we would be a blessing to other people. So thank you, God, for this challenge today to grow up, to be more like you, to be a blessing to others, to not treat people as it's, but as real individuals. And God, will you please, we're begging you, would you please use us in this community, in this world, to be that blessing to others. And we pray this all in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In my own little world, it hardly ever rains. I've never gone hungry, always felt safe. I got some money in my pocket, shoes on my feet. In my own little world, population me. I try to stay awake during Sunday morning church. Throw a 20 in the plate, but I never give till it hurts. And I turn off the news when I don't like what I see. Yeah, it's easy to do when it's population me. But what if there's a bigger picture? What if I'm missing out? What if there's a greater purpose that I could be living right now? Outside my own little world Ooh. Stopped at a red light, looked down my window I saw a cardboard sign said, help this homeless widow Just above that sign was the face of a human I thought to myself, God, what have I been doing? So I rolled down the window and I looked her in the eye Oh, how many times have I just passed her by I gave her some money that I drove on through And my whole little world reached population Let me see that my own little world.
what about me? What if there's a bigger picture? What if I'm missing out? What if there's a greater purpose? I could be living right now. Cause I don't wanna miss what matters. I wanna be reaching out. So show me the greater purpose. So I can stop living right now. Outside. Father God, I want to say thank you for helping us today to see the need, to care about it, to feel it, and to act on it. God, thank you for helping us learn how to love well. You loved us so well. And you've modeled for us what it means to really love others. Jesus, help us to grow up and learn how to love others. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Woo! Always so excited and proud of our church family when it comes to moments like this because it's when, I think it's when the love of Christ shines through us in the greatest way. And I think that there are so many times in our life when we, um, we hear something and we know that God's speaking to us, uh, we don't feel like maybe we have the resources or we have what it takes to act on, on that need that we see. But there's something about when we come together as a whole church family that we, we just seem to step out and say, I can be a part of this. I can play a part in this. But I want to encourage you today, uh, filling these bags and bringing back 8, 10, 15 tons of food. I, I hope that we can feed people till the summer with, with the food that comes back this week. And you can feel free to take as many bags as you like on your way out today. But I hope that it goes deeper than that for you. I hope that it's, it's transformational. And this is what I mean by that. Mel said that today that oftentimes we're not uncomfortable in, in the step that we need to take. Um, and so for some of us today to take and fill five bags would be a good thing, but it really... It's not that stretching for you. And so maybe no transformation would happen. For some of you, taking those five bags and giving four away to other people and involving them might be a little bit more of a stretch for you. It might be a little bit more developmental for you to say, I want to involve some people around me. That might involve some conversations that you aren't used to having that would be good for you to have. And so I want to encourage some of you who that might be your step to say, hey, I'm going to do that. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to take, take a step of faith and step into what is not easy for me to do. But every week at Daybreak, we try to give you an opportunity to practically respond to what we're teaching. So whether it's through feeding the need this week or maybe it's through you looking on your program today and saying, hey, I could give a gift to kids 
who need a Christmas gift through Stop the Violence, or my family could partner with another family, and maybe God spoke to you about one of those things. But possibly, as you fill out your response card today, I want you to think specifically about what God might want to be doing transformationally in you and what people you may have viewed as an it before or a group of people who you have not learned how to love them. And maybe today God is wanting to transform you, make you more like himself, have you mature and grow up emotionally just to take your next step in doing that by stretching yourself and saying, God, I want it to be personal. I want it to be trans transformational for me in my step of growth as I learn how to love more like you. So would you take out your response cards and in these next few moments that you have, I want to encourage you to write out a prayer. We'll pray for you. We'll pray with you this week. Or if you need prayer for something and just say, God, would you do a work of transformation in me so that this is something that goes deeper than just meeting a need and, and, uh, and walking away. But God, I've met a need and you help transform me so that I can love better and love in a deeper way and be more like Christ. Let's take these next couple moments, respond to whatever it is that God is wanting to do in you and through you right now, and then you can join in worship.